You're listening to Arc Radio Podcast. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to Radio Ramadan 87.7 FM. You're listening to Cradle to the Grave show with Sheikh Amr Jamil. Um, but as you know, if you've joined us previously, this is the show uh, every Friday and Saturday night uh, where we're trying to talk about issues that are relevant to all of us going through various stages in life. So we've talked a bit about birth, we've talked about parenting, we've talked about marriage. Um, and today is going to be marriage part two. And it's really um, a lot of topics we'll be covering, inshallah. But firstly, I'd like to welcome who's in the studio today. So I've got my co-host, uh, Brother Abdul Wadud. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum man. How are you keeping? Alhamdulillah. Good, thank you. So you're getting used to all this new equipment as well. Uh, things, things yeah, been, I'm trying. I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to work my way around it. Things have been rearranged. And um, really privileged to have our main guest, Sheikh Amr Jamil. Assalamu alaikum, Sheikh. Assalamu alaikum. Talking about forced marriage, we're also talking about domestic abuse um, and exploring some of these themes. And it's, these are often themes that people find difficult to talk about. But it's really a sensitive topic. And I think, you know, from the outset, um, I think these are issues that are affecting uh, many people in our community, both male and female. And so. I think it it can evoke a lot of emotions. So I think my advice would be to keep, you know, to look after yourselves as well. So if there are issues that are being discussed that you're finding very sensitive, very difficult, uh, make sure you get help. And we'll maybe touch upon some of the places you can access help um, if you are struggling to cope with everything that's going on. So Sheikh, forced marriage, and I guess even definitions and terms are really difficult because they're quite emotive, isn't it, in terms of um, what we mean. So I'll give you the official sort of Scottish government definition, um, which says a forced marriage is a marriage in which one or both parties do not consent to the marriage and duress is involved. And this duress is both physical and emotional pressure and it's obviously very different to arranged marriages where both parties give full and free consent to the marriage. And there's obviously legislation as well to do with forced marriages. So, Sheikh, I mean, um, you've done a bit of work around this whole area. So does that imply that it is a big issue or it is an issue that needs to be resolved or is it one that we always hear about in the media? You know, because, you know, the whole issue of forced marriages, honour killings, and even these terms are quite emotive Um you know, is it actually because you, you deal, you know, through your work through Unity Family Services, you deal with a lot of cases and a lot of family issues. So, so tell us a bit about this work and why you got involved and how how big a scale of a problem is it in your opinion? Alhamdulillah, wassalatu wassalamu ala rasulullah, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Wa alaikum assalam wa So, <clears throat> yeah, I got involved um, with this. There was actually a precursor to this, what which was my involvement in domestic abuse. So uh, forced marriage, you could say, is almost a subsection of that, or you could say it's even a... Uh, it was related anyway um, to that. But what happened was um, in 2011, there was a forced marriage act that came out in Scotland. The act had come out in England previously, and so the government um, was doing consultations with the community, people that are involved in this work, and asking their opinion. Um, and the main difference was that uh, in the English Act, um, when they had like, a forced marriage uh, order, if you broke it, it was a civil matter, whereas in Scotland they wanted to make it into a, a criminal matter. Um, and at that time, we there was obviously this overlap of arranged marriage, forced marriage, um, lots of uh, misunderstandings amongst Muslims and non-Muslims. 
So I had suggested to them that I had written something earlier on domestic abuse. I'd written a booklet on domestic abuse and then I'd written a smaller pamphlet or you could say a leaflet just called the Reminder uh, series which I used to do back in the day. And so I said, look, um, what we should do, well, I, what I can do, I can contribute is I can write a leaflet, a simple leaflet. We can put it in different languages and then we can um, distribute that across Scotland, which Alhamdulillah, I did then. Um, on the back of that, the the feedback was that there was still some overlap or some misunderstanding between arranged marriage and forced marriage, and so they wanted to do a follow-up uh, project after that. So I um, suggested that if we really want to send a strong message, the way we would do that is through our imams. Um, so I said what we should do is get a, make a statement and get the imams to sign it. So if anyone's in any doubt whatsoever, when they see that simple statement and they see lots of signatures from imams across Scotland, that will basically be the final nail in the coffin. And that, you know, that should make it crystal clear. So alhamdulillah, um, as you know, it's not easy getting imams to agree on anything. <laughs> quite <laughs> so, an achievement. So I'm quite proud of the fact that we managed to get 29 signatures from across Scotland uh, on that one statement. So um, that's... Um, you know, an achievement in itself. Where can we access the reminder and the statement? Is it? Do we need to just Google something? So we want to there's actually a Facebook page called Imams Against Forced Marriage. So if you Google in Imams Against Forced Marriage in Facebook, there's a page you can go and like it. Uh, the statements there in the statement, the poster that we produced is there in English. It's in Arabic. It's in Bengali. It's in Urdu. So it's in different languages. You can actually just download it print it off yourselves, uh, distribute it, so there's, or just um, share it amongst people, so it's very easy to do. Um, and again, you know, like when you get involved in any particular topic, there's things that you learn which you didn't know before, so uh, one of the things that was very, clear, very, very um, important to make clear was that this was not a specific Muslim problem, just like domestic abuse is not a specifically Muslim problem, it is a um, community problem for all communities but we are a community within many communities and so we have that problem just like other communities have it um, so forced marriage has been actually um, recorded amongst Christians Jews, Hindus, obviously Muslims and Sikh communities so it's not something particular to Islam however um, there is um, a, something particular to us which is obviously our religion so my argument with uh, the government was, look, when you have a cultural practice like this, which is forced marriage, the only thing in the Muslim community that can change that, it has to be something which has higher authority. The only thing that's got higher authority over culture is religion. So if we can establish it from an Islamic perspective that, that there's no room for forced marriage, that's the only thing that will change the cultural practice. Mm. So, because Muslims will you know, invariably uh, go to or, or ask um, scholars or they will find out or they'll even use Islam. And what, what uh, was important was um, to clarify um, lots of Islamic uh, positions because one of the things, or one to say, that, say the common scenario in the Muslim community, say opposed to other communities, is that parents have this understanding that the children have to obey them in everything. So if they say you must marry this person and the, and, the, and, the, and the young person says no, they're saying you're disobedient. You're being disobedient, don't you know that? And sinful. And, and sinful and you're going to go to hell because, you know, the mother is at the, the paradise at the feet of the mother. I mean, they, they, they know particular hadith, but 
like you know, we don't just cherry pick hadiths, we don't just pick cherry pick verses, we have to look at everything comprehensively. So one of the things I had to clarify in the leaflet was parents themselves that uh, you can't, you're confusing culture with religion because even Islamically, your uh, obedience to the creation is contingent on your obedience to the creator. So if your parents say, I don't want you wearing hijab, then do you have to obey them? Of course you don't obey them. If they say, I don't want you praying, can you? should you obey them? Should You shouldn't be obey them. If they said, I want you to drink alcohol, you have to disobey them. So there's situations you actually have to disobey them. So it's not absolute. Obedience is not absolute. It's contingent on um, if it's in uh, accordance with Sharia. And what I was trying to show was that forced marriage is not in, in, uh, in, in uh, it contravenes the spirit of Islamic law and therefore a young person doesn't have to obey them and then the, the, the kind of stuff that we come across that well my parents said if I don't marry XYZ they're going to um, disown me mm. um, so I, the, the question I say to them is that Islamically permissible or they said they're going to commit suicide right I said first of all I've never heard of any parent commit suicide up until today right so it's all an emotional thing number two is suicide halal it's haram uh, is disowning, uh, cutting, severing family ties is a haram? It's haram. So you can't, you can't um, use a, a haram action to coerce somebody. I can't say to you, you need to do this, otherwise I'm going to drink this lag, a can of lager. Okay. So I mean, because it's haram in the first place. Yeah. So uh, to say that if you don't marry this person, you're no longer my child, or you're this, or you're that, or I'm going to cut you off, or you can't hear it from me. All these things are completely haram, so you can't threaten somebody with someone haram, something haram. And, and, and I'd like to unpick some of that uh, in terms of that emotional baggage, because I guess the issue with the, these things, you know, if you ask anybody, are you allowed to do this or not, they'll say no, right? You could, you're not allowed to, you know, domestically abuse somebody, and you're not allowed to be a forced marriage. But it's, it's the grey areas, it's the nuances which becomes really difficult. So in terms of the aspect of forced marriage, if we can unpick this a little bit. So from the Islamic perspective, um, for me it sounds like the, the whole issue is about consent and capacity. Now just cl- clarify, if you if you can, Sheikh, where does the, the bride and where does the groom stand in terms of consent to getting married? So what is the minimum or the ideal that is recommended? So for example, if a girl needs to get married or a boy needs to get married, is it their choice? Is it their parents? Do they need to consult? You know, what's the guardian, the wali, etc., etc. So, if you can just clarify this aspect of, in a normal uh, nikah, you know, this aspect of consent. If you can clarify that, please. Okay. So, um, in terms of consent, I mean, it depends on the different schools. We don't have time to go into all the different schools. I'm going to stick to the Hanafi school because that's the vast majority, and the vast majority uh, of the 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 Hanafi school, which is what the mass majority follow, um, the male doesn't need permission to who, who wants to marry. The female um, doesn't need permission as long as she marries somebody who she's socially compatible with. So um, the situation where a wali can have objection is, for example, she wants to marry a, a religious man. So say she's from a religious family, they pray, they fast Ramadan, uh, and she wants to marry somebody who doesn't fast Ramadan, doesn't pray, um, you know, engages himself in, I don't know, uh, drugs or something like that. The whole role of the wali is to safeguard the female's interest. He's there to ensure that um, 
it's like a, it's like a, another layer of safety because as you know the um, the the impact for a woman is greater than a man because if she gets involved in a marriage and she gets divorced then the the difficulty of getting remarried or if she ends up with children and the husband won't support it's going to be a burden on her so her getting that decision wrong is more critical whether right or wrong but that's just the way it is so there has to be there's that the will is supposed to be as a as a layer of protection that uh, if his 18 year old daughter you know she's not being exposed to many men all of a sudden falls in love with somebody whatever you want to call that because I'll give you case after case of people who said they were in love and 6 months later they're all of a sudden not in love um so it's there to say look hold on a second let me let me speak to this guy uh, you know and, and find out is he stable as he you know as he mature person as he the per- kind of person who's going to look after my daughter properly that's the theory of it so as long as she marries somebody who she's compatible with so somebody of a similar uh social background um somebody similar kind of uh, islamic uh, background all those things are there and he has the ability to provide for her then he doesn't really have uh, any grounds for objecting it has um consent is recommendatory it's recommendation the other schools are a bit more strict but um definitely in the the hanafi school there's a bit more flexibility so generally they are free to marry whoever they want and for a female um has to be somebody who's like kind of socially uh, parable with her um, but as long as it's, it's that that's fine in terms of getting consent there's different ways of doing the nikah so uh, one way which is n- never really practiced is quite simple so um you have the groom and the bride in front of you know the way the christians get married they have the the the, the bride and the groom and they take vows similar to that so the the imam would say okay um repeat after me and get the other guy to get the groom to repeat so that's one way there's a, there's an offer and acceptance there's witnesses there's a mahar and the walis there the imams there and uh that's one way of doing it but it's not really very often done the way it's usually done is and i guess it's probably a cultural thing because uh women are supposed to be kind of shy they're not supposed to be ecstatic on their marriage because they're leaving their family that's you know they're supposed to be an element they have to cry for the video yeah, the yeah there's an element of happiness but there's an element of sadness but again all that's changing as well <laughs> now um so the idea would be like the wali usually the father would go with witnesses or the imam goes and he gets permission from her and says okay do you give me permission to marry you to xyz for the mahar the, the dowry of xyz and she says yes they come back and then they they do the nikah you know with the groom um so there there is this thing in 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 the in the books that if she doesn't speak she's silent and she's not been married before then that can be taken as a sign of consent because uh generally women would have been shy to say anything again that's that's based on orf on custom you could now argue the orf is different we could look at that but that's what the traditional texts say um however if the if she was there present and um the the groom made an offer she would have to then accept it if she didn't if she kept silent then that would be an invalid nikah and i've heard of situations where people have been gone to pakistan they've been kind of forced into marriage and the imams asked the the girl and she's not said anything in that situation that actual nikah is invalid itself so she has to actually articulate it 
why is that in terms of has because you're uh, saying normally the silence is tacit approval that's when that's when you're seeking permission so the wali's seeking permission or the imam seeking permission but when it's the actual contract the actual offer and acceptance okay, okay. so if it's if if the if the woman was in front of us we'd we'd have to be certain that she's actually accepted it because she's doing it herself now okay there's another situation it's the imam or the wali doing it and so I get I guess some of this you know because I've been asking about and trying to get some real case sort of stories and case you know case examples and and the one that's come up a few times um is the real sort of emotional blackmail particularly for the women obviously you know any of these issues can go both ways for men and for women but I think it is commoner in women um and sisters so you know it's this element of and this is what I mean by the grey area. So family are perhaps putting immense amount of pressure. You know, grand's not well, or somebody's going to pass away, or they go to Pakistan and you know take the passport away. You know these sort of elements. Um, and you'll perhaps have come across these sort of mm. cases. Um, I guess thinking about where does that leave the validity of the nikah uh, and the and the marriage, and also then what is the advice to these sisters? If they're unhappy in that situation, and are there examples from the Sunnah that you know helps us derive? We, we, you know, scholars derive some of these understandings and evidences. Yeah. So in in the the statement that you can get access online, I mentioned two hadith of the Prophet One is narrated in Abu Dawud, where a woman was married against her will, and, and the Prophet asked her, you know, did would she want to continue? Or did she or did she want the marriage dissolved? The second one was uh, when a w- young woman comes to Sayyidina Abdul Aisha anha, and she says, my father married me to his brother's son, in other words, a cousin, in order to raise his social standing. Um, so you could, you, could, you could do an analogy with that, that the girl's here and the father brings his nephew over from a village or something, again, to raise the social standing. So it's the same, exact same situation. Um, and she says I, I didn't want it. In other words, I was coerced into it. So Aisha says to her, says to her, uh, sit until the Prophet comes. When the Prophet comes, she tells the Prophet The Prophet then calls for the father, uh, calls for the father, and then he says to the girl, right, you have a choice, right? You can continue or we can dissolve it. And she says, O Messenger of Allah, I've accepted what my father did, but I wanted to prove something to other women. In other words, that fathers have no right to force them into marriage. That's an insati. Um, so she was trying to make a point she was okay, she was fine she accepted it, but she wanted to make a point that this is um, fathers overstepping the mark the boundary, so I think it's quite clear um, from uh, from our texts uh, and I think the way to the way to discuss it with parents um, is that a number of questions you have to ask the parents do they want their children to be happy um, do they want their children to resent them um, is it better? Is it not better for the child to say no to a marriage they don't want, rather than being in an unhappy marriage and then getting divorced later? You know yourself that the divorce rate is going up, and with a high divorce rate, if somebody's forced into that marriage, the likelihood, if people who are going into marriages willingly are getting divorced, somebody who's been forced into a marriage, that the likelihood of that ending is going to be high. Now. If you're if you're doing it for the welfare of your child, um, and there's a high likelihood of them getting divorced, 
is it better that they say no and there's a bit of commotion in the family now rather than two years time you have to deal with it you have to deal with your child getting divorced and the whole commotion of that in other words there's going to be more problems later so I think it's a bit well, convincing Sheik, sorry to interrupt Sheikh I mean that is you know in, in often that's the situation if you feel you can reason with these with the parents or the relatives um, I know cases where you know perhaps you know brothers have you know made the promise of their children you know when they're born like two three four one you know they've then moved to the UK and then you know it, it, so and often there's that whole wider context of you know is it and and respect and honor in the family or you, you know you have to marry your relative etc because we've made that promise and that and that you know almost throughout their life they've been told look when you hit the right age you're gonna get married which to this is, person. which is why we have to clarify what is the Islamic understanding of, of respect for parents? What is the Islamic understanding of obedience to parents? Um, so something which is not from the Sharia, which is based in culture, can't be used. So my advice always is to people, and I've had people in that situation, my advice to um, males and females, usually it is females, but it can't, it, sometimes it is males, is just, hold, it just stand your ground. And yeah, you may have to take some heat, but in the long term, you're better off putting your foot down now rather than getting yourself stuck in a situation. Then you're going to run about, uh, if things don't work out, you're going to run about trying to get a divorce and this and that. And then there's family pressure, no stay in the marriage, no. And then it's, it, it just becomes a bigger problem. So it's convincing young people to have the strength. That takes a lot of courage, though, of course it? Because it it's, it you know, it's 24 7, pressure, yeah. pressure, yeah. pressure, which pressure. Is why, which is why the scholars have to step in and say no. Um, explain that you know you're you're correct to stand your ground. Doesn't matter what they're saying; they're in the wrong. Um, and obviously, by all means, seek seek um, you know advice from imams and scholars. Get your imams to speak to your parents and make them understand that look, this is not the right way to do things. So get other people to convince your parents if they're not listening. Mm. Okay. Um, and there's been mention of. Um I guess you know on, on many of these issues that we as a community we need to start addressing some of these issues and make sure there's the right support so people you know can access that help because otherwise you know it can be very lonely not not everyone's got relatives and cousins that'll sympathize with them and actually that's quite difficult um suppose somebody is forced into a marriage and you've commented about you know the validity of that so I mean would that be grounds for somebody to you, you mentioned you know they, if they weren't if they felt if if it was forced, they could then end that end that marriage, and that would be legitimate grounds. Um, I guess moving on to a bit more of a sensitive topic as well, and and it perhaps overlaps with our topic that's going to come in the second half. Um, is I guess the intimate side of things in mm. terms of the intimate relationship, um, and this whole aspect of can, for example, the husband force himself on the wife. Um, and I don't know, is that something you want to pick up in the second half or is that something that... Because I think there's overlap with this idea of uh, consent, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Both consent in marriage, but consent in terms of in the marriage itself. Um, so where, where do people stand? Uh, I think I think the fact that you have to even ask that question, mm -hmm. um, you know, even you asked me that question, a cringe inside, so, you know, you're... you're uh, fitra, your natural state tells you this is this is not right. That if um, you know, if you look at the Quran, the Quran says, 
وَجَعْلَ بَيْنَكُمْ مَوَدَّةً وَرَحْمَةً He has engendered love and tenderness between you. That's what marriage is supposed to do. And if you're in a situation you're getting forced into something, you're getting forced to be intimate somebody you don't want to be, it's going against that whole spirit. Which is why, um, like I said, as, as hard as it is, the best solution the best solution is to stand your ground and not get getting involved in these marriages because it becomes very murky. I know I spoke to a barrister from, from England and um, she was telling me about a case where she was, it was a forced marriage case and it'd been, you know, a couple of years and a couple of kids and, um, you know, the barrister said, well, when did you decide you were forced in the beginning or after having three kids? You know, so then, because the thing is, we, we weren't there, we don't know what's going on, so is that person then using forced marriage as an excuse to get out of the marriage, um, which which can happen. There is manipulation, which you, you have to appreciate. So it becomes very difficult to work out, was there force, was there not force? And that's why, uh, as a solution going forward, you really have to get people to just st- stand their ground and not get involved in these things. But the reason, I guess, why it's uncomfortable asking the question as well as you cringing when you hear it is pe- because I, I know of cases where people, again, will u- you know, selectively use hadith. And so they will say, you know, that, you know, the, the man has needs and the woman has an obligation to meet the needs for example or that if she denies it she'll end up in the hellfire and it'll open up all these other fitna yeah. so it's almost like um, you know you're there to meet my needs which is clearly an a, a unhealthy relationship mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but is it sinful or is it wrong I guess that's what we're kind of trying yeah. to tease apart here because um, you know both uh, individuals might be at very different stages of you know the wife they might have had a kid or something tired and knackered and they're just not interested or maybe they don't even like the guy to be honest but they're just kind of bearing it and maybe see, the, the guys see, the thing is right we we have a, a vision of, of marriage and then the problem is that uh, um, when we get questions we get questions which is like messed up questions and we try to, and, it's, and it doesn't fit with that theory because the theory's um, there for, you know, there's a, there's a presumption that, that Muslims are decent people. They have morals, they have taqwa, and, you know, that all plays a role. But the thing is, you're dealing with people, um, like you said, who are just looking at it, my needs. Um, it's a very un-Islamic way of looking at of marriage. So the the theory of marriage is that you are in this relationship. If you're in this relationship, you have got rights and responsibilities. Okay, so you have um, obligations upon yourself. So one of the one of the um, obligations is to ensure you, your spouse is sexually satisfied, because there's no other outlet for that apart from fornication or adultery, which destroys society. Um, there, when there's a situation, there is a reason not to be intimate, like this menstruation or the the female's ill. There's a, that's a genuine uh, reason. But if there's no reason, there's no reason for her to um, uh, be involved um, sexually intimately with the male. Then uh, that leads to sexual frustration. That leads to him maybe seeking um, female company at work which can be a slippery slope, which is why the hadith, it talks about, um, you know, the the husband wants to be intimate with his wife 
and she refuses, then the, the angels curse her. Now, that is there to illustrate, you know, uh, the um, the emphasis on um, both couples being intimate because if, if, if that doesn't happen, the sexual frustration will build up. Men are not like women. Um, if you look at most men, if they get divorced, they usually get married quite quickly. They can't, they can't function without women. Whereas women, uh, you know, many of them can function without a man. So Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has made us very differently. Now, the interesting thing about the hadith is, it never, it never said that the man forced himself. So, yes, he he made the request. She refused, but he then had to stop there. He didn't force himself. So there should be no force going on. Um, any uh, any uh, actions which is going to lead to uh, physically holding her down or um, causing her harm, that's going to be uh, problematic and, and, har- and impermissible because you're not allowed to harm another individual. So this, you, know, you understand there's all these different um, aspects to this question, which is why it's yeah. a bit messed up. And it's clearly, I guess, you know, with Scottish and Brit- UK law as well, which is clearly Scottish laws. Scots laws. It's, 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 it's illegal, cut, isn't it? It's illegal. You go to you yeah. you go to prison if you Absolutely. if you get um, uh, arrested for it. So okay. that's obviously another risk uh, people run if they do this kind exactly of thing. Exactly, Um So we're touching on this to- topic of forced marriage, Abdul Wadud. We've had a few questions and stuff coming in. Yeah. Um, do you want to just? I know. I think the issue is sometimes. Um, some of these topics are related to marriage, but otherwise, but yeah, yeah. Sh- Sheikh doesn't mind. I guess we're continuing our, our discussion from last week. So you've got a question coming in anonymously. Yeah, I've got a question coming in anonymously. Uh, so, Sheikh, you mentioned when looking for a partner, we should look at someone of similar Islamic background. What advice would you give if a potential partner is of a different sect or school? Um, I think if it's a different school of thought, like... Um, Hanafi's marrying a Shafi'i. Uh, I actually think it's quite good because uh, I think you'd have really dis- interesting discussions. I know some of my teachers there, the, like the wife was a Hanafi and he was a Shafi'i, and really interesting discussions that they used to have. So uh, I don't think that's a that's a problem. If it's um, the fact that if you if you mean by uh, school, like one is a Sufi and the other is a Salafi, um, I think that could be uh, the thing is. You, if uh, the thing is, it actually depends on the type of people you're dealing with. Most people think they're really open-minded and encompassing. And from my experience, having dealt with numerous cases, I mean, I've dealt with about over 800 cases through Unity, is that most people actually are not as flexible as they think. Mm. Right? They think in their minds, but they're actually quite strict. They're actually quite stuck in their ways. Uh, and for most people, somebody who's more similar to you is going to work. The more different they are, the more accommodating you need to become. And remember, this is for the next 34 years, not just for one year, for six months. You can do it for a year, six months, but then doing it for such a long time. So um, if there's if there's commonality between them, that's probably the key um, okay. question and compatibility. But if it's somebody like a, like a really strict Salafi and a really strict Sufi, their arguments are probably going to be all about religion. <laughs> right? And I actually had a case like this uh, down in England where what happened is um, they've got four kids and they're I mean the guy's a dentist she's a doctor so they're not you know, these are educated people but she's kind of gone the Salafi way and he's gone the Sufi way and he said that all our arguments we agree on everything but the arguments we all have is about religion 
and that's where we were at each other's throats. So um, I think you'd have to discuss with that person if you if you're a, say you're a, say you're a Sufi and the other one's a Salafi, you'd say okay, well I, I I practice this or I believe this. What's your perspective? And if the other person says, look, that's fine. If you want to do it, I I, I don't want to do it. But if you're if you want to do it, I respect your opinion. That's fine. But if they say no, that's 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 a bit then you're going to have a problem because you're going to want to do things the other person is going to believe you're doing something wrong and you're going to have arguments. So it depends on how flexible they are. What about Sunni Shia? Sunni Shia, again, um, if it's, if it's um, uh, people, you know, like a lot of people are Sunnis, a lot of people are Shias, but they don't really know much, right? <laughs> you know what I mean? The, the, if you look at Iraq, where a lot of Sunnis and Shias coexisted, a lot of them were married to each other. But your average Muslim, right, doesn't really know much theology. It doesn't really get into these issues. It's not much as much of a problem. But the ones who are more switched on, um, then the, again, the, the 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 problem is not going to be probably as much as the couple. The couple might say, "Well, okay, we respect your opinion. You respect my opinion." Blah blah. But then you, when you get into more theological issues, like for example, if the um, if one party believes that they can curse Sahaba. And the other side loves Sahaba, that kind of thing. You know what is going to be your position? Number one, number two is if you say, "Look, I don't curse Sahaba," you know, I just don't agree with them. You know, another person that's fine. But then when you interact with the wider family, right? You, you when you have when you have Eid gatherings, when your child you have children and they mix, and then you know yourself when families get together they talk about politics and religion. There's two things that everyone's got an opinion on: is politics and religion. And it can easily spiral into a conflict. And I had this case where a brother was married to an Arab uh, sister. And, um, you know, when she's at, at gatherings, they're all Pakistanis. But there's one particular uncle who, you know, has a go at Arabs when she's there. And it basically just turns into a fight and the husband doesn't know what to do. So these are real issues. You know, we can say, yeah, we're Muslims, it's fine. You know, marry any Muslim you want. I, I, I'm not. I, I'm more pragmatic than that. So, yes, in theory, yeah, it can work in theory, but in practice, for ninety percent of people, for ninety percent of people, it's, it's better off that they come from similar backgrounds. So it's important to go in with your eyes open and know what all the issues are. You should discuss all these. You should discuss all these questions beforehand. So we're going to go to a short uh, ad break. Before we go, um, uh, if if you just joined us, you're listening to Cradle to the Grave with Sheikh Ahmed Jamil, and we've talked a bit about forced marriage. Um, and we're going to uh, move on to issues such as domestic abuse, so very sensitive topics. Um, I'm just going to share some contact details because I know that we talked a bit about where can people access help, and a lot of these are for the sisters, but um, there are services, really, we know men are affected as well. So there's um, Him, Him at Griff, which is Women's Aid, they support BME communities. With a lot of these projects, rather than giving you phone numbers, I think you can Google a lot of this sort of stuff. There's Amna Muslim Women's Resource Centre. A lot of these projects work, it depends where in Glasgow you're living. Uh, there's something called the Daisy Project, which covers sort of Pollock Shields and Castle Milk. There's Women's Aid, which covers sort of, uh, which is based in the main street in Barhead, and co- that covers South Lanarkshire and East Renfrewshire. So there's a lot of contacts, and I'll perhaps repeat them later on in the show. But if you are struggling, you often do need that specialist help. You need the support of people that are trained. Um, and that can help you get out of these situations because it's often very difficult to get out of some of these situations yourself. I guess part of the process, you know, part of this, you know, it's only by talking about these issues and discussing mm-hmm. it will it perhaps 
help people think about what's going on, um, hopefully to prevent these sort of issues, but also to help people in very difficult situations. So uh, we've talk, been talking a bit about forced marriage, consent, um, what to do in some of these difficult situations. And uh, you can contact us um, and send some of your messages. We've, we're here till 2 o'clock, so not much time, so get them in quickly, um, mainly through our Facebook page. But although we've got another uh, question that's come in. Yeah, we do. Uh, Sheikh, so the question that we received is, so Sheikh, you mentioned that religion trumps culture. What if the family doesn't hold as much stock in the religion? Or what if their cultural, pra- cultural practice is stronger than their religious practice? Yeah, so um, like I was saying that uh, when it comes to these issues, if you're if you're talking to your parents and they're not taking you seriously, then you need to get somebody who they will take seriously. So I mentioned like getting an imam to speak to them. If they're not as religiously inclined and they're not going to listen to the imam, then you need to have somebody else that they would listen to. You know your situation better. So it might be an uncle, might be an, an elder, might be a community leader. You see, might be maybe an MP, I don't know. Whoever your family looks up to, who are the family friends, who are the people that they aspire to be like. Uh, it could be a certain family. Whoever has influence over them, get them on on your side and get them to speak to your parents. So if it's an imam, go for the imam. If it's like a community leader, go to a community leader. Whoever you think can have influence over uh, your family. I know sometimes uh, even... Uh, I don't want to mention people's names, but you know, like counsellors, uh, political counsellors have said to me that you know they've got involved in family things because people listen to them. Certain families listen to them. So whoever uh, you think can get the message through to your parents, uh, ultimately, if they don't listen to anyone, you just have to say, well, the, the, you know, I am obliged to follow my religion. That's it. Um, and my religion says I don't have to do this. And so you have to just stand your ground. I know it's. Um, easier said than done it's not an, it's not an easy process but in the situation that you're in it's much better to stand your ground and not get in, uh, no, not get yourself into the situation because having dealt with people who do get themselves into the situation it just becomes it just becomes from bad to worse so you're better off just standing your ground and uh, yeah you will get some heat um you will um, get some nasty things said to you and so on but if you can manage to hold your ground then in the long term it's going to be a lot better for you. So Sheikh, let's uh, move on to domestic abuse um, and as we know that it's a really sensitive topic and it's the abusers and the victims can be of it, both male and female, any race and gender um, uh, and religion that you've kind of mentioned earlier on similar to forced marriage. And I'm just going to read out the, the definition legally what uh, domestic abuse is. So it's any form of physical, sexual or mental and emotional abuse which might amount to criminal conduct and which takes place within the context of a relationship. Um, and there's often a misconception that it's just about physical abuse um, and that's not often the case. So physical abuse obviously involves all types of assault, physical attacks like hitting, including with objects, punching, kicking and burning. Sexual abuse includes forcing you to have sexual intercourse or forcing you to engage in sexual acts. And perhaps one of the commoner aspects is the mental and emotional abuse. And this can include threats, including threats of violence, criticism and name-calling, controlling what you do, where you go and who you speak to, threatening your children, isolating you from friends and family, accusing you of being unfaithful, 
threatening to out your sexual orientation to family, friends, or work, um, and reveal sort of other th- personal aspects. So this is the definition um, in Scotland and from this from Police Scotland. This is uh, I've taken that from. So it's quite w- a wide encompassing thing. And actually, when you break it down, some of these aspects, particularly mental emotional abuse, they're actually not that uncommon. Um, so tell us a bit about your experience because you, you've also done a lot of work around and, and as you mentioned that was where you sort of started off with this whole aspect of domestic abuse so um, do you think it is quite a significant issue within our community and what are some of the factors that are contributing towards it? Yes yeah, so um, back in 2007 I mean it's incredible so it was 10 years ago um, I was actually still studying at the time but um uh, it was Amina that they'd um, uh, written a, a booklet on domestic abuse and, and I was checking it over for them. I ended up rewriting it for them. Um, and again, it's one of those things which you, you kind of st- I stumbled into it. I didn't really know much about it. And as I started to research, I was just like gobsmacked. I remember, and it's still the, it's still the same stuff. If you go to Women's Aid website, it will give you uh, an amazing um, start that just still today just startles me. Um, that the biggest killer of women in the UK is not cancer, it's do- is domestic violence. It kills two women a week. Two women a oh week gosh. are killed by uh, through domestic violence. And in England they call it domestic violence. In Scotland they change it to domestic abuse to encompass not just violence, but like you said, mental abuse. It's a bit more encompassing. But that I remember when I read that I was like, what? I, I was like, this, somebody must have made this up. This can't, it can't be true in the UK. You tell me in this civilised society this is what's happening. Then I read another stat that there is um, a domestic violence call in the UK every minute Gosh. to the police, every minute. And before that call is made, on average, um, there will be 35 instances before that call is made. I was just like, you are having... You, this can't be true. This just cannot be true. Costs um, the UK economy £23 billion pounds a year. So this is a massive problem, which is why you hear it. The Scotland, the, the the police go on about it. All these women's groups go on about it. It's on um, the radio a lot because it's such a wide scale scale problem. Um, I mean, in Scotland, it's every ten minutes there's a reported incident. Remember, a lot of cases don't go reported, so these are um, it's going to be a lot higher than that. Fifty-two um, percent of women murdered in Scotland are killed by a current or former partner. Right, so. This is like a huge problem. Now, in terms of stats for the Muslim community, there's nothing specific. We have BME, um, which is black ethnic minority. The stat is no no um, higher than the average for the, the, the host population. However, what, they, what they're concerned about is that because of cultural reasons, women might be more unwilling to report things and speak out. So it could be potentially quite a bad situation. And domestic abuse is just a... I mean, the more you read about it, it's just, um, it's really, it's just really horrible. Um, for just as a community, um, uh, you, people who are, are abused are more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, uh, eating problems, sexual dysfunction, uh, higher rates of mental uh, illness. Abused women are more likely to self-harm. Um, with uh, South Asian women aged between 16 and 24 one and a half times more likely to harm themselves than white women 
children are affected, children who witness this, they're affected, it affects their psychology. And there's a debate of whether children who view it will become abusers themselves. It's not conclusive. Some say yes, some say no. But um, it's it's quite bad for children who witness it. And even if they're not physically abused, the children, the emotional, the emotional effects of witnessing domestic abuse are very similar to the psychological trauma associated with being a victim of child abuse. So it's quite a serious thing uh, that's um, going on under our noses. I mean, one of the things I always... And again, maybe that prompted me to be a bit more proactive about this was I thought, you know, we, we, we will go on about in our charity dinners about uh, Muslim suffering in Syria, Muslim, Muslim suffering in Iraq, in Pakistan, whatever it is. Um, our our women are being abused. This is ha- So we, we, we could, our sisters are being abused. Well, our sisters are being abused in Glasgow. Mm. Our sisters mm. are being abused in two streets from you. So you're concerned about something halfway across the world, but you know yourself the rights of neighbours is, is greater. Your own locality. There's things going on in our own localities, and we're not doing anything about it. So as a Muslim, we have an obligation to those who are closest to us. And you know the, the famous hadith, that if you see something wrong, change it with your hand. If you can't, then change it with your tongue. And if you can't change it, change it in your heart. So... Um, we're supposed to, if we see something wrong in society, we're supposed to try and change it. There's another hadith that says, Unsur akhaka zaliman al madhluma, that um, give aid or help your, your brother if he's an oppressor or being oppressed. So they said, Ya Rasulullah, we understand when he's being oppressed, how do we stop the, uh, um, how do we uh, come to the aid of the oppressor? He said, from stopping him from doing the oppression. So when we see something, uh, oppression going on, and there is oppression, I've just given you all the stats, there's oppression going on in our communities, what are we doing about it? And the thing is, um, people know when domestic abuse is going on, families, uh, family members will know, extended family members know what's going on, it is their responsibility, because the victim, uh, what happens is it's a very, it's, it's, it's a difficult, difficult situation because people say, well, you know, why are they not seeking help? But what happens is it's a, it's a, a very manipulative um, or um, situation where what happens a lot of the times the abuser convinces the victim that they deserve it mm. and they convince them and they actually start accepting it. So it becomes very difficult for the victim to see what's going on. It's almost like there's a spider's web, isn't it? Yeah, there's yeah, so yeah. Many it's, a vicious, it's a vicious circle. It's a vicious circle. Stuck. And um, that's why people who can see what's going on don't turn, you don't turn the face. One of the things with our community is we, we tend to think, oh, I don't want to get involved in case mm. people blame me, right? Mm. Um, that's a very cowardly thing because if that was, if that was you, you, if you were the victim, would that be acceptable? Would you want your brothers and sisters who keeps going going on about one ummah? Would you want them to come to your aid? Of course. And the thing is, remember, it could be your sister, it could be your daughter. Uh, you know, you wouldn't stand by, would you? You'd do something about it. So, if you don't want to be uh, flagged up, you can always report it to the police or something. You don't have to say that it was you. It can be an anonymous call. Um, so there's lots of ways of of helping people. But if you know of abuse going on, you need to step in and do something about it. In one of the really shocking instances that I heard once is, um, I think a sister, and we know it happens to brothers as well in terms of this controlling relationships, etc. So, you know, brothers can also be victims of um, domestic abuse. Was that? Yeah, was I mean, yeah, I mean, I did a, a project back in two thousand ten, two thousand ten, and alhamdulillah, I mean, it was really good because um, 
at that time there was a lot of bad press from Muslims in the, in the press and when I did this project um, and uh, again wrote a leaflet put into different languages and I and I made an agreement with uh, I can't remember if it was with the police or the government I said look I'll go and visit all the imams and I'll get their understanding and we'll get them to talk about the khutbah so I travelled all of Scotland and met everybody and um, it was interesting speaking to the imams and they all varied some of them were f- quite aware of it some were not aware of it and there was one imam in particular which is quite interesting all his cases that he'd come across were male victims so yeah he was quite and I remember I was like wow I've not, yeah. not heard this from other imams and he said and I asked him what was the situation he goes a lot of them were people who'd come from abroad Pakistan and that it was the in-laws that were abusing them mm-hmm. by making them work in a shop or making them do a t- certain task and not giving them any money and saying, look, you don't listen to what we're, what we're saying. We're, going to, we're not going to apply for your visa. We're going to send you back. And so he was saying a lot of his victims were male. So yeah, although the majority of victims are female, um, there are victims who are male. And again, uh, it's about 14% uh, of, of domestic abuse victims are male. But the uh, figure could be higher because males are more unlikely to seek help because it's seen mm-hmm. as a failure it's not a very macho thing and men and there's actually a, I was watching on Facebook you know they do these social experiments yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so they did the social experiment where they've got a woman and a guy and the guy's uh, giving abuse to the woman and as he's doing it all everyone comes to her aid so they, sl- they, they, they swap it where she's giving abuse to him she's hitting him and no one no, no one in the public mm-hmm. comes to his aid you see, so there's this idea that you know you're a man, you can take care of yourself. So um, yes, it's it's abuse can be against males, can be against females, can be a bit against children, it can be a bit against anyone. And our um, we should always side with the uh, victim and not the abuser. I remember, uh, although it's slightly different, um, a sister who had been uh, abused as a child, and um, she she came to me and she'd flagged it up. And um, when it had been flagged up, the guy got away with it in the, in the courts. And her family kind of, you know, blamed her for bringing shame. And, and I just stopped her and I said, look, no, you were the victim in this. And he is the perpetrator. It doesn't matter what family saying or anyone else saying, Islamically, this is a position. And just saying that gave her so much relief that, you know, okay, it, it, you know, it, it's, I'm, not the, I'm not the person that's causing all the problem. And it's, it's such a tricky thing because... Like I said, you sometimes can't, um, you, you don't sometimes understand that you're a victim. Yeah. I was dealing with a lawyer um, who, she obviously spoke to me in a personal capacity. She herself was a victim of domestic abuse. And I said, you give advice to other clients. You're a lawyer, you tell them the law, and you're a victim yourself, yet you're not seeking help. So that just shows you how difficult it is. So many factors involved. Yeah. Uh, actually, one instance that I... I was aware of was that um, when you know the sister plucked up enough co- courage to go and speak to an imam, um, the response was more all about how she should change her behaviour to please the guy and stuff. So then, if she does that, then he might stop it rather than criticising the guy or saying and supporting her and say, "Well done for you know taking that first step and seeking help." It's almost that now the onus mm-hmm. is on you, the victim to change your behaviour so that he stops abusing and it's yeah, just that, that totally contributes to it and that, that's why that's why um, it's important for there to be training because my understanding is is, is, in, is being enhanced because I've been on different workshops and the more you understand the way it works mm. 
it just enhances your understanding. And then you realize, okay, I need to behave like this because this is what's really going on. So it's not, you know, it's not that Imam's training, uh, theological training, he's been t- studying, studying fiqh and all the rest of it. These are uh, contemporary issues. So the more training we can give Imams, the better equipped they're going to be to do their job. And meeting people that have been through that experience and them talking about their experience. But Sheikh, we're really short of time. Um, I just wanted to touch on one thing and using obviously the opportunity while you're here from, from a, a scholarly perspective um, and it just really, it just really just to quash any you know any justification for any of this sort of abuse I guess there's you know often the the aspect in you know the 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 sacred text about uh, men um, being able to chastise their wives lightly beating them you know and often I remember used to hear debates and people say, well, you know, it goes from one extreme to people say, yeah, you, you can beat your wife, she doesn't listen to you too. Well, it's not really beating, you know, hit her with a miswak, right, and don't leave any permanent damage, you know. So um, can you just clarify this issue, just just really just to quash any misconceptions that the man in any way is justified yeah. beating or physically assaulting his wife? And this is one of those uh, questions which... Um, you can't answer in a 30 second soundbite you need to explain properly um, and what I would encourage people to do is if you go to the Unity Family website which is just unityfamily.co.uk go to people, my name and under there it will tell you in the biography um, I wrote a booklet called What Islam Really Says About Domestic Abuse and it's a PDF, you can just download it um, and I discussed the whole understanding of that verse because what I tried to explain was that you can't understand the verse without context. So um, we have a principle in Islamic law which is ad-dararu yuzal or la darala wa la dirar. These are legal maxims. There's no harm to be done and no harm to be reciprocated, and harm must be eliminated. So in the backdrop of that, you understand. You look, you read the verse. Now um, the the first thing is that <coughs> this this word nushuz. Uh, that if you fear their nushuz, the the problem is that the way these things have been translated into English, like um, some people have translated uh, nushuz as disloyalty or ill conduct, or is, is, it's it's basically where there's like a serious issues, like like for example infidelity, which is going to destroy the marriage. Uh, so it's, it's not talking about when you're not cooked the. The, the dinner or there's too much salt in the dal or something mm. right it's got nothing to do with that because these are things which themselves are not obligatory so how can there be any uh, you could say re- re- punishment for doing something which is not obligatory upon you in the first place so um, it's something when a serious danger the Quran then tells you of uh, different stages uh, admonish you know remind them of of the of Allah's laws um, if they continue, then you use an emotional um, step, which is to uh, n- not to sleep with um, the wife, and that's like an emotional thing that you know, uh, you know, the, the things things are really getting bad that we're not now um, intimate anymore, we're not in physical contact anymore, and then it goes on to say uh, what's called darb in Arabic. Now, you know, I've seen it translated in different ways as as hit, as beat. The best one was beat lightly, which I never understood because the only thing I've beat never lightly was a egg. Um, so how do you beat something lightly? You know, so it's 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 how do you understand that that word? And this is where we go to 
um, how did the Sahaba understand these things and uh, Ibn Abbas uh, who was known for his tafsir of the Quran his understanding was it's like um, like a like you said a miswak or like a folded um, handkerchief and the understanding was that it's like a what's called Ramzi in Arabic like symbolic and it's not really supposed to be anything that causes any harm because we've just we've, we've established that harm should not be done so it can't be and so obviously to make that to 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 qualify that or to give guidelines so that it's not misabused mis, misused um there was guidelines that it can't leave a mark it can't leave an impression uh, it can't be on sensitive parts of the body like the face stomach um so all of these things and again it was uh, it's not that it's obligatory it's permissible in extreme uh, situations where basically it's got to the end it's divorce is the next step and this is the last thing to illustrate that look this is how bad things are now um, now uh, at the end of the the the, Quran, the, the verse it says uh, you know when some verses it says Allah is the forgiving interesting this this bit uh, this verse ends with Allah is the most high and the scholars of Tasir say that the, the, the ends with Allah is the most high because that's a reminder to the husband that Allah is watching that if you go beyond the boundaries then you're going to be sinful now that is put in the context of how that verse was understood at that time um, some uh, um, scholars like Ata which is from the Tabi'een he was of the opinion that um, you don't you don't hit at all uh, there's other scholars like Ibn Ashur famous Tunisian scholar whose tafsir is very famous in the last century he said that the, the, if the if the state felt that this was being abused they could just put a, a blanket um, prohibition on it because people are not using it properly um, I in that I in, in that um, uh, in that uh, booklet after explaining it then I said two very important things first of all is that the whole point of allowing that was to prevent divorce in other words prevent things getting worse if by doing that it makes things worse so like in our culture in western culture that could make things worse if it makes things worse it goes against the whole point of what you try to achieve that's the first thing and secondly even a light hit would be considered assault in uh, in, in Scots law so we live in, uh, you know, in, in this country, and we have to respect the law of the land. So, if the if the law is saying it's, it's illegal, then you have to respect that. So, really, um, you have to understand the verse in that context. And very simply, there's a hadith in Muslim that says the Prophet says, "I've never hit any of his wives. He never hit a servant. Never never hit a child." So, the Sunnah, the Sunnah is. Um, that's that's our that's our ideal that we should be living towards anyway, and the Prophet used to be very unhappy if he heard of this kind of thing. He used to say, "Khairukum khairukum li ahli, wa khairukum li ahli." The best of you, the best to his wives. He also said that when he heard that some men had beaten their women, he said, "How can you beat your wives and then lie with them at night time?" He, he scolded them. So if you look at all the hadith together and the verses and the verse and the context behind it, you can understand that. It's it's not really talking about uh, abuse, and and I guess it's if it's getting to that stage, really you know a big solution is getting relationship counselling and sorting sorting the marriage out rather than yeah because the verse talks about yeah. um, that if you then fear that things are not getting worked out, فَبَعُثُ حَكْمًا مِنْ أَهْلِهِ 
send a mediator from your side and a mediator from their side. So mediation or um, getting relationship counselling, whatever you want to call it now, is sanctioned in the Quran. And obviously with all of these topics, Sheikh, you know, you can spend days, you know, these are really complex issues, days about learning and training, etc. So I guess the aim of this show is just to give people a flavour of some of the issues and touch upon it, but really for people to start understanding some of the issues and you know, do some research, you know, take that onus on yourself. So Sheikh's given some uh, links and uh, uh, has done a lot of work preparing some of these reminders and articles. Um, we're going to be posting them on our Read Ramadan Glasgow Facebook page um, o- over the coming days. Um, so in terms of where you can get help if you these affected by these issues, where you can read a bit more, because obviously even this uh, explanation Sheikh's kindly given concisely, you know, it's a bit lot more in depth, but also about really... Um, you know, empowering yourself to understand the issues, understand how to support yourself, but also support people around you because these are really difficult and emotive um, topics and issues. And it's not something you can just resolve lightly and it's not something that happens overnight. Often these things build up over weeks and months and years and they take time to address. So um, hopefully it's been of benefit covering some of the aspects today about forced marriages, about consent about what domestic abuse is, whether it's emotional, physical, sexual. Um, so please do educate yourselves. Please do look up some of the references Sheikh has mentioned. Um, Sheikh, thank you so much for your time. Inshallah, we'll be back tomorrow uh, with another topic. We've got a topic in mind, but I'm half thinking of changing it, but I'll need to go through our producers and, and make some decisions. But keep an eye on Facebook. Uh, whatever the topic is, you'll be able to submit your questions. Uh, Abdul, would there be any sort of final comments from yourself before we sign out for the night? I know we're running a bit late. Yeah, I just think that unfor- like it's unfortunate we didn't have a little bit longer to discuss it a little bit more because Sheikh was having some, I think, real key hitting the hitting the points on the head, you know, so to speak. So, alhamdulillah. Jazakallah Sheikh. So I think, assalamu alaikum from all of us. Have a lovely evening, inshallah, uh, and get some sleep. And we'll be back with you tomorrow night. For more information and to listen to more podcasts, visit us at arc.score or check out the Arc Media app.